This morning is Sunday. It is June 25th, Sunday morning. Our topic this morning is devoted. It's the third part of a series. The first one was devoted to the apostles' teaching. The second one was devoted to the fellowship. And the third is devoted to prayer. And uh, my little man is going to come up here and read us Psalm 117. Come here, baby. You can just uh, hold it and you can read right here. Um, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples, for great His love toward us. And His faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Amen. That little baby just read a whole psalm, and y'all thought those were long and hard and difficult, huh? <laughs> I love the Scriptures in the Bible that boiled it down to simple things. What does God require of you, O man, but to love mercy, to act humbly, to act justly, or walk humbly? Oh, you clearing me a path here? <laughs> Amen. Y'all open your word to the book of Acts. I want to thank the men that showed up early to pray. It makes a difference in the service. I don't know how to explain that to people. But all of the work that is done for God is accomplished in prayer. And the reason that it is not more talked about, the reason that it's not more practiced, is it's almost impossible to get glory for it, which is the way Jesus likes things. If there's ever been a great revival, it was prefaced with prayer. If there's ever been a powerful service, it's because somebody somewhere was interceding. Now I'm a guy, and that means I'm subject to all the normal failings of guys. I don't like to watch movies unless somebody is blown up or shot at. And for that reason, sometimes I tend to think of the spiritual things that God gives us that are holy and sweet and beautiful in guy-like terms. And to me, prayer is the air attack. You can stand here and lob bombs on your enemy a continent away. And I just love it. It's what softens up his defenses. So I thank you men for showing up and praying this morning. I could feel it in worship. Isn't that amazing? Did you feel like God contacted us and us Him this morning in worship? I certainly did. I live for that. If that ever stops, then we might as well go ahead and convert this garage back to what it was and park cars in it. But as long as He will meet with us in our humble circumstances, man, that makes life worth living. It really does. I'm going to read you something, and uh, I'm going to take a pastor's liberty this morning. I hope that's all right with you. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to teach on prayer, but then I'm going to teach on whatever I want to teach on. Is that okay? I got a word during the, during the middle of the service. So if there was such a thing as formality's sake, we'll tie it into prayer, but I got a whole other message going. I'm going to read you something, though, that at least complete the thought in our series. It's in Acts 2, verse 40. It says, With many other words He warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted His message were baptized, and about 300 were added to their number. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All of the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved daily. You know, I, uh, I heard that word. I read this word. And I was excited by it. Because when I saw what the early church did, it was not too complicated for us. The early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the Word. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to prayer, which is communion with God. When you break bread in the Middle East, it's a sign of reconciliation. If Dina and I have had a long-standing feud and I invite her to my house or she invites me to her house and we sit down and have a meal, there's something that happens in that meal. There is a, uh, a communion that occurs. It takes, especially in the Middle East where your meals are four hours in length, and they start at dusk and last till midnight, and you push away from the table and go to sleep at the end. It takes, it takes a certain amount of love for each other just to sit down. And we serve the kind of God that will make for you a table in the midst of your enemies. He will show you how to reconcile with people. Well, the early church was exceedingly good at that. They met with one another daily. They had a communion with God and with each other, and it overflowed in their prayer lives. As we talked about that, in the third chapter of Acts, what you begin to see is that the apostles are going to pray. And while they're going to pray, they're met by a man who wants money from them. That's what he thought he needed, was money. They didn't have any to give him. But they did give him what they had, and his whole life changed. I believe that the reason Jesus gathered us in here this morning could be all kinds of things. Maybe you thought you just needed to be around some other people today. Maybe you thought you came for a relative. Maybe you came because your daddy made you. You came expecting something, but God will give you what you need, and He knows it so much better than we do. Isn't that good? I love Him for that. If you uh, will turn from Acts to the book of John, I want to read you something else. We're going to be in John 8 for a moment. Remember I told you the Lord gave me something a little different during worship? I'm going to tell you what it is. Is that alright if we deviate from the path this morning? It's going to be... In John 8, we see a story. You may have a footnote or a note in your text that says that this story is not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Don't let that bother you. You can tell because the Spirit of God is in you when you read this that the heart of God is in it. Regardless of what your note says there, it made it into the canon of Scripture for a reason, and I pray it makes it in your heart for a reason this morning. You remember some of the words this morning? God deciding or desiring to speak with you today, not letting anything hold you back from His presence. The accuser's been cast down. What causes you to stand at a distance? He delights in you. He desires fellowship with you. All of those words... That's not contrived. We didn't make that up this morning hoping to touch your heart. We came in here ready to worship, ready to preach on prayer, and God took us in a new direction. I believe that's because you're here. So who's you? Is that Judah? Is that Dina? Is that Mandy? It's you. (laughs) God is big enough to meet all of your needs 
and give you fresh daily bread today. In John, verse 8, we see this verse. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around Him. And He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Isn't it a horrible religious spirit that will make sport of something that's happened in your life to make some greater point? You know, some of you have had negative experiences in the church. You don't come to be in a church like this because your life has gone wonderfully in organized religion. <laughs> some of you have had experiences that were painful and that hurt. I want you to watch this story. They caught this woman in the act of adultery. In the act. And then they say, hey, the law of Moses commands that we kill such a woman. Such a woman. You know, they put her in a category so different than them. Never mind that Jesus called this same generation, all of them, adulterous. They pick out this woman and say, this kind of bad, lower than, cast out person, she deserves to die. And let me ask you something just from mechanics. If they caught her in the act of adultery, is it possible she was alone? Where's the man? Do they really care about what is right? Do they really care about what the law of Moses says? Leviticus 20.10 says if you catch people in adultery, you bring the woman and the man. But they don't do that, do they? Because that's not really what they're after. They're after saying, Jesus, here is somebody that you should treat harshly because you're holy. How many times does the religious world gather together and look over their shoulder at somebody else, whoever it is that is struggling, and treat them harshly to show how holy they are? I want to see if God is the kind of God that's willing to do that, to treat somebody harshly to show how holy they are. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with His finger. When they kept on questioning Him, He straightened up and said to them, before we get there, have you ever wondered, what on earth did Jesus write in the dirt? How many, how many sermons have you heard in your life on what Jesus wrote in the dirt? How many preachers have surmised what He wrote in the dirt? In this church, we learn that Scripture is interpreted in light of Scripture. So if you want to know what Jesus wrote in the dirt, where should you look to see what He wrote in the dirt? In Scripture. Now, we're a New Testament church. We're patterning ourselves after the book of Acts, right? How exciting! Then we should read the New Testament, right? Except that the church in the book of Acts had no New Testament to read. What were they reading? The Old Testament. Well, maybe we should turn to Jeremiah and see if we can get a clue what he was writing in the dirt. In Jeremiah, in the 17th chapter, and the 13th verse, watch this word. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Why? Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. There's only one place in all of the Tanakh, all of the Torah, all of the Old Testament, 
that says that God would write somebody's name in the dirt. And there's only one reason that He would do it. When they forsook Him as a spring of living water. Well, that in itself, you say, well, it's neat that that's written and that Jesus writes in the dust, but I don't understand, Eric. What's the context? In John 7, Jesus had just stood up and announced Himself. John 7:37, with a loud voice on the last and greatest day of the feast. If any man thirst, let him come and drink of Me. John was so kind to write in the note in the Scripture. By this, he meant the Holy Spirit who had not yet come upon any of them. These men who are here bringing this woman and accusing her, showing how holy they are by pointing at how unholy she is, had just heard the cry from God, God Himself in the flesh, if you are thirsty, come and drink of what I have. And they forsook Him. They didn't do it. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own by putting down others. Have you ever been victimized by that? Worse than that, have you ever participated in it? Have you ever sought to make yourself look holy because somebody else was unholy? Well, I've been on the wrong end of that stick. In Christianity, people raise up standards for themselves. We don't do this and we don't do that and they sneer at you. We don't cut our grass on Sunday. We don't wear shorts like those. We don't have facial hair. We don't have whatever it is they don't have. Saints, I want to emphasize something to you this morning. You are not a Christian because of anything that you do not do. What makes a Christian is what you do. In this church, our lives are changing constantly. We are devoting ourselves to teaching. We're devoting ourselves to fellowship and to communion with God. And you know what it teaches us? It teaches us to show that we're Christians by the things we do, by love by not throwing a stone at anybody. You know, I, I was raised in Louisiana, which means I've heard every good Catholic joke that you can imagine. And what I was taught about this is that Jesus was standing there and He says, If there is any one of you who is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone. Right then a big stone lobs over Jesus' head and smacks this poor woman in the face. Jesus turns and says, Mom, would you quit interfering with my work? That's not the Immaculate Conception. That's the Immaculate Deception. I'm sorry. I'm teasing. There is a demonic teaching out there that it's not Jesus who was born in an Immaculate way. It was Mary. I guess we could go down that road, but I am sensing that that's not where God would want me to go this morning. But Jesus bent down and started right on the ground with His finger. He was writing Jeremiah 17:13. All who forsake the Lord spring of living water I will write in the dust. When they kept on questioning Him, He straightened up and said to them, Any one of you without sin, let him first to throw a stone at her. Again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, all who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Saints, that's exactly what happened in the worship service this morning. It was as if God were crying out to each one of you, Where are those that condemn you? I find it amazing in the church we have no problem believing that God is a big God. We have no problem believing Jesus can do anything. We have no problem believing that God is in control. 
But we have every bit of a problem believing that He delights in us, that He chose us, that we can walk in a holy way, that He sees us as something good. Jesus went out of His way at great risk to Himself to not allow this woman to be condemned. In fact, when somebody accused her, what did He do to them? He showed where they were guilty. Isn't that interesting? Anytime we pick up the Word and use it like a magnifying glass, anytime we pick up this Word to magnify how big Judah's sin is, we need to remember it was not designed as a magnifying glass. It was designed as a mirror. It reflects where we need to change, what we need to do differently. Saints, I'm sorry if you've been hurt in a church. The body of Christ is not meant for that. That's a perversion of men. There's a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation will tell you you can't succeed. You've never succeeded. You won't succeed. You should go out and hang yourself now. And I won't ask you for a show of hands, but I've heard those words in my life, in my own head. That's condemnation. In Christ, there is conviction. As this woman watches this, as she sees this, knowing that she is guilty, but seeing a man who refuses to condemn her, something begins to happen. In her rises up an inner voice that leads her into a place where she can repent, where her life can change. Conviction always says you're capable of more than this. You're called to a higher plane. You can do it. That's the difference. One is the voice of man and one is the voice of God. And the voice of man will condemn you, take you out in the field and kill you because it hates you. But the voice of God will always restore you and take you to something higher. I don't know why all of you are here this morning. Some of you I know very well. Some of you I don't even know at all. But I know that the voice that I heard in the service this morning was one that said, you're capable of more than this. You can go to a higher place. He loves us. He delights in us. After these people leave, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you. Colossians 1.22 says that the accuser of the brothers has been cast down. No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. You notice Jesus didn't put any heavy requirements on this woman. He didn't require her to agree with a 14-point doctrinal statement. He didn't require her to dress a certain way. He didn't require that she be able to clap in rhythm or that her teeth be straight or that her hair be fixed a certain way. He required one thing of her, to love Him enough to try to change. That's all God wants of you this morning. We would do ourselves a great disservice to get together and talk about how to pray to God without talking about what God wants of you. And the truth is, the reason that most people do not have a healthy prayer life is they don't have a healthy view of themselves. When they go to pray, all they can think of is all that they have done wrong. When you go to pray, all you can think of is how you failed God in this area or this area and how unworthy you are. In fact, some of you have even been taught to join hands, bow your head and pray, Lord, we're just old sinners. Saints, nothing's further from the truth. The Bible does not describe you as sinners. It describes you as saints. The Bible does not describe an atmosphere in which God is waiting over your head with a stick to show you all the things you did wrong and beat you down. It describes one who refuses to condemn you, 
but instead shows you to a way of life. This is a God that you can communicate with. This is a God who can be like a daddy to you. One that is not harsh and overbearing and wants to beat you for everything you did wrong, but one that wants to see you do well, that believes that you can, that is willing to invest in your future. You know, the Holy Spirit has been reduced to many things in the Spirit-filled denominations. Simply a sign that you speak in other tongues so that you're saved. Simply a prophecy. Some right out of the imagination of men, but blamed on the Holy Spirit. We've created an environment where it's who's who in the charismatic zoo. Oh, well, this guy prophesies well. Well, this one speaks in tongues. Well, this one does this. This one does that. The Holy Spirit is really for one purpose. To get you familiar with the personality of Jesus. And what you'll find when you fellowship with Him is love, acceptance, power. If that's not what you've seen in the church, I repent and apologize to you for that and for my brothers and sisters because that's not how it should be. We are called by a holy God into a prayerful relationship of acceptance and power. And if you think I'm weak and watering it down, you don't know me. You just don't know me. Saints, we've confused at times a hard-hitting, preaching, powerful message with some invention of a man designed to get you at an altar because you feel bad about yourself. That's not the God that we serve. I hadn't planned to go here, and so I apologize if it seems random to you. But I have a feeling it's hitting a spot that it's supposed to hit. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7. Thank you. Have you ever been filled with the feeling you just can't possibly measure up? Everybody that you ever met that wore the, the name Christian, all they could do is look at you and sneer. Maybe you've not been so lucky in relationships. Maybe you meant well for your children, but they just didn't turn out right. Maybe you're doing your best to hold the job, but you can't seem to do it. Maybe you eat too much, drink too much, smoke too much. Who knows what it is that somebody looks down their nose at you for. I want you to remember these verses. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul has just written a scathing and also encouraging letter. A mixture of carrot and stick, if you will. In fact, he even tells the Corinthian church at one point, Hey guys, I'd like you to get this ready before I come. I know some of you think that I'm bold in my letters when I'm away, but I promise when I come, I will be in person what I am in my letters. Would you like me to come to you with a stick? He was capable of it. But I want you to hear what he says to those people. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, this is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. When you have had interaction with Christians in the past, if it promoted in you a kind of sorrow that said, man, I'm just... This is not what God wants for me. I can do better than this. 
He wants a better life for me. Then that's good and that's godly. If what you received was sorrow that made you just want to go crawl in a hole and die, that's not God. Any way that you look at it, no matter how anointed the person was speaking, no matter how eloquent, that is not God. We're not a church of failures. We're a church of the firstborn. You're firstborn because of who you are. If you've encountered Jesus, you've encountered the most life-changing power on the planet. And He knew what you were when He chose you. He knew exactly what you were when He chose you. And He's going to change us all. Turn with me to Hebrews 4. Y'all still awake? Y'all with me? <laughs> I love that preacher on the radio in Baton Rouge. Y'all not with me? He could solicit an amen, man. <laughs> he also one time on the radio right before they took him off. said, Deacon Jones! Deacon Jones, where is your wife? You should know where your wife is. And I'm, I'm driving down the road cringing for poor Deacon Jones being called out in front of all of the Baton Rouge audience. But that's not where it stopped. Where it gets worse than that, he says, And Deacon Smith, how could you bounce a check to the church of the living God? You didn't lie to us, you lied to God. And I thought, oh my goodness. I don't know whether I like this guy or hate him, but I wouldn't be in his church. <laughs> he got pulled off the air not long after that. Are you all in Hebrews 4? I'm sorry, once in a while the entertainment spirit kind of hits me. In Hebrews 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith or trust we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of God with confidence. Hear me, saints. Let us then approach the throne of God with confidence. The worst thing that the devil could do to you is steal from you your confidence, your right to make it to the throne of God. When we talk about prayer, we can talk about the Lord's Prayer. We could talk about beautiful prayers that Jesus prayed in John 16 and 17. We could talk about the prayer of Jabez. Boy, wouldn't that make everybody happy and sell some books. But none of it matters if you don't get this one essential thing. God desires communication with you. He is longing. You know, my stepfather, I call him Dad. He raised me and I love him for it. Gary Kinchin told me a story about his father. And I'll I tell you, I didn't know very much about his dad. By the time I came along in his life, his father had deteriorated medically to the point where I didn't really get to know the man. You know what I mean? But I could tell he was a character. There were only a couple things in his life at that point that really made him laugh. And I was a nine-year-old boy, so I knew them all. He had a little sign above his desk that said, Jake the Snake. You know, he was a trickster, uh, a clown, if you will. I don't have to tell you the kind of boyish second, third grade humor that made him laugh, do I? No, Steve understands. But when Gary told me this story, I thought, man, that is a picture of God if I ever saw it. This old guy, kind of, well, his body was broken down. Sometimes his mind wandered. 
Gary was living in Lake Charles, Louisiana. But when his father heard that he was coming to visit, the father went out early that morning and sat under the carport where he waited for his son all day. Now, Gary didn't get there till late in the evening because he didn't even leave till the afternoon. But that's a father's love. Jesus came to reveal to us that father's love as our relationship to God. This week we had a beautiful testimony, a story of a daughter coming home. And I was so happy to hear that one of our sheep has got this message down in their heart. And the advice they gave this family who's receiving a daughter is kill the fatted calf. Put a ring on her finger. You need to adopt a picture of God that is not some great, big, bigger than you God. The reason Jesus was incarnate, the reason the Word became flesh was so that you would have a visible image of an invisible God. The kind that would not throw a stone at you. That would not accuse you even when the whole church world would when they would throw you out as trash, when they would hang you as a leper, put a bell on you so that they could hear you coming and avoid you, He was willing to make you clean. That's the God that we serve. And when you pray to Him, you need to know He's longing like my dad sitting under a carport waiting for you. And if that's not what you've heard from the church, you've been lied to. If all you've ever heard is that God is displeased with your behavior, they don't know the God that I know. Because I serve Him. And I know that in my most broken moments, in my moments of failure, that nobody knows about except maybe my wife, is when He's the closest to me. Say, so, oh, Eric, why do you have to be so emotional? Because that's the kind of God we serve. I tell you, I spent years being macho, and it didn't get me anywhere but broken hearted. I've learned how to be moved by God because I've learned what moves Him. And saints, you know what moves Him? You do. He's longing for you. And if all you've ever heard is that you're a failure and that you're bad, you've been lied to. That's not the message. That's not the good news of the Gospel. If that was the good news of the Gospel, I'm telling you I'd go be a Buddhist or something. No, I wouldn't. I'd do something that was more fun than that. We serve a God who parted the heavens for you that was tempted in every way just as you are so that He would understand, so that He would know what it was like. He was heard because of His reverent submission, but He experienced everything that you do. James 2 is a Scripture that has been just ringing in my ears. And I don't know what it has to do with prayer other than a right perception of God. But I want you to hear this. In fact... Nothing would make me happier than for you to memorize it. I don't tell you to do that very often. If that's just something you think you cannot do, then take out a big fat pen, anything but a black highlighter, and circle this in your Bible. It's James 2, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You hear that, saints? Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if all anybody's ever told Steve is what a bad guy he is, how many ways that he's failed, he can look them right in the eye and says, the God that I serve will judge me by a law that gives freedom. His mercy has triumphed 
over judgment in life. And saints, let me tell you this. When you meet somebody that does not show mercy, it's because they don't know what it's like to have received it because maybe they never met the man. When you know what you were saved from, when you know the depths of the well that you were pulled out of, you don't have any problem relating to other people that are stuck in some different well. You minister to them mercy because that's what you've received is mercy. When we're talking about a prayer, when we're talking about being devoted to prayer, you've got to get into the heart of God. Otherwise, your prayer is simply a Santa Claus list. Lord, I want this. Lord, I want that. Lord, the cosmic genie, would You do this? Would You do that? When what He wants is for you to rely upon Him. What He wants is for you to be His ambassador. The kind of prayer that moves the heart of God is, Lord, I want to loosen the chains that are binding my sister. Lord, I want the means to be able to help that family to do this or to do that. That is the kind of prayer that the early church was involved in. And how do you know it? Because it's what they did. They had all things in common. One sold the house to meet another's needs. Who in the American church would do that? Who among the great pastors with their crystal cathedrals of our day preach that message? No, they want you to kill your fatted calf for them and they promise you seven more in return. If it works that way, why don't they just send me the money? God will give them back seven. Yeah, call a prayer line and tell somebody that. There's a gospel of extortion and condemnation that has corrupted our nation. Worse than that, it is a weak, dead religion that produces no change in people's lives but a bunch of people that run around and point fingers. When you come into contact with the living God though, when He touches you in the way that He does me, your response will be one thing. Lord, change me. I want to be more like You. And it will not be the feeling that it's not possible, that you cannot do it, but that He delights in you. He wants to empower you to do it. And that won't reduce your experience with Him to simply speaking in tongues or being dunked in water or signing your name on a gift certificate, or receiving donuts or pizza on a Wednesday night. All of those things are wonderful. I like donuts and pizza. But that's not God. When you've tasted of Him, you yearn for more of Him. And the problem is, we've seen so much that has turned us off, we've decided that it's not worth tasting of Him at times. When we devote ourselves to the true teaching of the Word, not what men say. Saints, quit accepting what comes from a pulpit as God's Word infallible. Men died in a reformation to free you from the grips of an evil pontiff that what he said was ex It was above the Scripture and you simply had to do it on the pains of death. Men died to free you from that. And what do we Protestants do? We gather around us movie star pastors that are beautiful in their appearance with makeup on and smoke and mirrors and lights to be pontiffs to us. It ought not be that way. You have the right to enter in behind the veil where the Holy of Holies is. Jesus tore it in two from top to bottom in front of the most religious nation on earth to show that even Judah could get in. How dare we sit on the sidelines? We stand back because we think we're not good enough and He died for us to show us we were. I wouldn't give you a thousand dollars if I didn't value you. 
I certainly wouldn't give you my most prized possession. Well, then what does it speak about God when He poured out the most precious substance on the earth for you? It means He values you, saints. It means that He thinks highly of you. I've taught you about the three schools in Jewish life. And that all of the apostles, all of them, with the exception of Paul, had failed out of those schools at some point or another, unable to make it through the religious system. And yet Jesus found them and chose them and made it a point to say, you didn't choose me. I chose you. No different for you, saints. Jesus prayed for His disciples. Then He prayed for all believers who would come to know Him through their message. He prayed that you would understand how He views you. That you would be one with Him. What prevents it? Why do we not pray with power? Why do we not fellowship with encouragement and excitement, sharing the body of Christ with each other? Well, maybe we've been in the wrong fellowship. You know, I know Christians when I meet them. And it's not... If what defines you in your religion is simply that you don't, let's just list a few for fun. Drink or smoke or dance. Oh, God forbid. How are you any different than a Mormon? How about a Jehovah's Witness? Why don't you just go unite on the seven promises of a promise keeper? What makes you any different than them or any other moral person? What happens when somebody does drink, does smoke, does dance, maybe even strips down to their underwear and dances in the streets, but they love everybody that's around them? They take the gospel to foreign nations and refuse to be judged by anybody. You think your sense of those freedoms is going to impress God? Or the loved everybody that came into contact with the gospel were church is like fishing in an aquarium. There's just not much sport in it, is there? Somebody asked me one time why I didn't mind that Christians smoked. They had all of their nice sayings about you don't go to hell for it, but you smell like you've been there and all the clever things that they had to say. And they went to a church where they quoted Charles Spurgeon on a regular basis and the man smoked every day, but they were ignorant of that fact. And you know, that really is the problem with the church. The expectations that they place on people lift up leaders who on the surface look like they meet them. They speak in a different octave. Brothers, just love everyone. (laughs) They have different haircuts. They wear the right suits and they look okay on the outside. But there is no power in it. Jesus had no beauty. He had no majesty. He had nothing to draw people to Him except the power of God. Now, if you didn't know something of that, you certainly wouldn't be in a garage church this morning. I'm assuming that you do and that's why you're here. The trick is to get it to permeate our lives. I'm telling you, Jesus was revolutionary. I don't mind that I don't conform to a mold. Somebody was teasing me this week, said that they wanted to produce a bulletin for the church. I laughed. I said, how would you do it? I don't know what we're going to do ten minutes before the service. <laughs> More power to you, though. You know, pray. See if you can hear from God. <laughs> yeah. 
Just speak in tongues, write it down. Those who are spiritual get the interpretation. (laughs) Saints, I understand. There are cobwebs in our life. From week to week, there are things that creep into our life and it weighs us down. There are things that you hope to get victory over only to find yourself back in it. I was reading about a Christian prayer meeting this morning. I'm going to read you a quote from this book. A Christian who attended a prayer meeting faithfully always confessed the same things during testimony time. His prayer seldom varied. Oh Lord, since we last gathered together, the cobwebs have come between us and Thee. Clear away the cobwebs that we may again see Thy face. Uncontrollably, one brother in the back row said, Oh Lord, why don't you just kill the spider? (laughs) The problem is the spider is us. Let's be honest. When you were lost, you were a puppet on a string, a slave to sin. You didn't know why you did the things you did. What was the slogan from the day? If it feels good, do it. That's pretty well what you were led by. Now that you've been born again, you know the good that you ought to do. The problem is, James says, we're led off by our own evil desires. The reason I teach on the uh, teaching of the apostles and the fellowship and devoting yourself to prayer is because it is how you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, control your desires. It's how you shape your desires. We can go ahead and acknowledge what Paul said in Romans 7 is true. There's a war raging in us. There are good things that we know to do that we don't find a way to do. And every bad thing that we don't want to do, that we find ourselves doing. Some people are so twisted theologically. They're so self-righteous that they write that or read that as if Paul was lost during that time. Friends, that's like the married couple that tells you they've never been in a fight. Somebody is just not being honest with themselves. Paul was writing that just like you and I. He was writing that because there was a struggle. And what conclusion did he come to? In Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. For the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You are free in Christ to do all the good that He's called you to do regardless of your performance yesterday. You wake up each day and as that sun comes up and it rises in your heart, it's a new opportunity. You won't hear a preacher say this much, but I know you'll understand it. Yesterday sucked, but tomorrow will be better. That's okay! That's okay. We don't shoot for mediocrity. We don't say we're just sinners. We don't shoot for the lowest common denominator. We aim for perfection. But if you are found to have fallen short of it, what do you do? You do better tomorrow. That's what you do. You refuse to give up. Turn with me to Colossians. If you're in Colossians 3, we're going to start in verse 5. Kill the spider, saints. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity. <laughs> now, you know, you've got to love the way that Paul writes this stuff. Sexual immorality. You know, you go through the checklist. Oh, well, I'm good there. Or maybe you're not good there. It doesn't matter. But what do you do with impurity? <laughs> what is impure? You know, that's something that's not perfect. I think that pretty well mailed us all. Wherever you recognize it, you have to try to put it to death. Lust. 
Oh, yeah, nobody's ever struggled with that. That's why pastors are running off with their secretaries faster than... Well, we have to put it to death. You have to identify it, be real about it, and put it to death. Not pretend it doesn't exist, stick your head in the sand, and hope it goes away. You're real about it. Men, you should be in the men's meetings. Men find strength when they come together and say, Oh, whoa, look, dude, I'm not doing well in this area. I need you to pray for me. In that honesty, in that openness, not just men, but in that openness comes freedom and power. You know why? There's not some secret in your Christian closet that you're scared everybody's going to find out that condemns you and holds you down. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger. Nobody ever gets angry, huh? I love the church parking lots. You have to have policemen officiate. Isn't that nice? Drive down this street. This one right out here. Well, we preach longer than the rest of them do. They'll all be gone. But drive by on some Sunday morning when you've not managed to pry yourself out of bed to come hear this six-foot-tall icicle put you to sleep. And what you will see is that we have to have men with guns and badges direct traffic because people cannot control their anger. Isn't that amazing? And where are they found? At the synagogue of Satan, right? The church of Anton LaVey. No, they're found in all of our American denominations. Hmm. I'm sure Paul would like that though. Anger, rage, malice, slander. Nobody's ever slandered, have you? Did you see what she's wearing? Oh my God. And filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed. Renewed is one of my favorite words in the Bible. Doesn't it sound almost kidding? Well, I'm new. Well, I'm renewed. <laughs> you know, and I'm new again. What does it mean to be renewed? It means you were new once. Now you're new again. You might have to be made new again tomorrow. The miracle of the gospel is not that you were saved. Boy, isn't that how we love to say it? I was saved when I was eight. I was saved when I was 40. I missed all of those years. Well, I was saved when I was 18. And it's a ranking, right? Cassie's been saved longer than Judah. Judah's been saved longer than Patricia. So we kind of get our spiritual pecking order. Never mind how they act. The miracle of the gospel is not that you were saved. It is that you are being saved every day. Say, well, when I used to do those things, well, praise God, I hope there's a whole long list of things that you used to do. But let's talk about the things that... You are doing now. See, we get this holier than now, I've been born again attitude. Well, I have been born again. That was the beginning of the race. Now we say I have the obligation to mature. There have been people that I've met that have shook my hand and said, I'm elder so-and-so. I've been saved for 20 years and I thought, my God, I'm sorry. 20 years, you're still in diapers. How did that happen? And in leadership. Poor guy. How vulnerable you must be to be a novice. Be ready to be picked off by the enemy. It's not about when you were saved. 
It's about living a life of salvation. And part of that is recognizing every area that you need deliverance in and obtaining it. It's all been done. It's our job to walk in it. And you can. You can walk in it. This is not the gospel of all the things that Mandy cannot do. This is the gospel of all the things that God has called Mandy to do. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Why didn't He say, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll still fail and be miserable and get mad at your dog and kick your wife. And That's not the story of the Gospel. The good news is that you can be better tomorrow than you were today because it's for the glory of God. You're still in Colossians 3? Do not lie to each other. Isn't that funny? You have to tell a Christian that. Do not lie to each other. You like that we uh, were mad at the dog and kicked the wife near? I'm from Louisiana. Do not lie to each other. Since, By the way, being from Louisiana has nothing to do with anything. That's just my excuse for the way that I am. I have relatives still in Louisiana and they say, you need to quit saying that, you know. Well, sorry. (laughs) Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its Creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. Wow! Compassion. When do you have to have compassion? Hmm? What is compassion for? Compassion's for a situation that didn't go quite right, isn't it? You mean that happens in the church? Well, if they're honest. Kindness. When do you have to show kindness? Perhaps in a situation where somebody hasn't been so kind to you. You mean that happens in the church? If we're honest. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And get this, forgive each other whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful that the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, when you talk about the Lord's Prayer, people forget and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We forget when we read through the Gospel of Matthew that if you don't show mercy, you won't be shown mercy. We forget those things. We have this idea that we're okay and everybody else is so terribly flawed. That we're saved and those other people are such poor sinners. That's not the Gospel, saints. The Gospel is for a community of believers that are all spurring one another on to great things, that are encouraging one another, that see in each other the potential to be great for God. That's not arrogance. Have you been taught that it's arrogance to want to be great for God? That's not arrogance. It's false humility to be anything else. God's looking for men and women who will stand up and say, I will do it. The Spirit of the Lord is searching the earth for those who will worship the Spirit and truth. 
In Galatians 6, you don't have to read this. I'll just tell you because I'm going to run out of time. It says, if you catch somebody in sin, if you catch them, I saw what you did. What's it say to do? Anybody know? You should have the New Testament memorized. Restore them. Restore. That's kind of like renew. It doesn't say label them. It doesn't say put a sign on their head that says failure. Cast them out of fellowship. Only let them back in when they get their lives perfectly like yours are perfect. It says restore them. When you see a problem, as a Christian what you're supposed to do is that person get restored. Not throw stones at them. You want a good prayer life? You want to devote yourself to prayer? concerned about the things God's concerned about. Figure out how to help your brother in their weakness without forgetting that you have weaknesses that you need their help in. When's the last time you heard that preached? When's the last time a pastor stood up before a congregation, especially of any size, and said, I have weaknesses that I need your help with? That's not what we want from a pastor, is it? We want perfection. We want the movie star pastor who always gets it right. And then you find out ten years later that there's been a hidden secret that they were never able to share with anybody and it overcame their life. Won't happen here. I'll be happy to be imperfect right in front of you because I need your help. Besides that, if something good should happen to come out of my mouth, you know it was God and not me. John Hagee told the story one time of preaching. And he was preaching on Balaam and his donkey. A lady came up and she said, You know, Pastor Hagee, I never realized till today how true it is that God can use a jackass to speak to people. He said he never knew quite how to take that. <laughs> if you don't know what Balaam and his donkey is, a donkey spoke to a man. So he didn't know how to take that. I want to read you this. Having understood that you are convicted but not condemned, knowing that mercy has triumphed in your life instead of judgment, leaving your life of sin and being a minister of mercy since you have received mercy. You can then feel confident to ask for giant things in prayer. When you get the heart of God, when you realize that you come into His presence with confidence, not condemned, not cast out, but excited about what He wants to do in you and through you and for other people, you can ask for giant things in prayer. It's related of Alexander the Great that on one occasion... A courtier asked him for some financial aid. Isn't that awkward? You ever had to ask somebody for money? The great leader told him to go to his treasurer and ask for whatever he wanted. A little later, the treasurer appeared and told Alexander, the man asked for an enormous sum, and I hesitated to pay it towards him. Alexander answered, Give the man... For he has treated me like a great king in his asking, and I shall be like a great king in my giving. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes we shame God by being scared to ask for too much as if it was hard for Him. Now get your minds out of money. I'm talking about what God can do through you in your life. Sometimes it's a shame for God for us to say, you know, Lord, if it's not too much trouble, or here's one you hear a lot, I don't pray for, other, for myself. I pray for other people. What's wrong with you, man? Start praying for yourself. You should be praying for yourself. 
It's an honor to God to trust and believe that He will do great things. When we're talking about devoting ourselves to prayer, first off, you need to cast aside the thought that you're condemned and convicted and can't do. God delights in you. Secondly, we need to get our eyes on the things God's got His eyes on. Restoring people. Serving people. Defining your Christian life by the things you do, not the things you say you believe. Lastly, we need to begin to look and not scared to ask for enormous things. Here's the song, and you've sang it as a song. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. We're scared to ask for our whole neighborhood. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. Say, but Lord, I'm not a good person. Did you hear what I said to my husband last week? Yeah, he did. And he knows you can be better than you were. Get over it. Get over it. Nobody knows you more intimately than him. And if that scares you, it should. But it should also compel you to the greatness that he knows that you can be. Hmm. Matthew twenty-one, twenty-one. I'm going to read you a few close here. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Here's Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. You hear the same themes over and over and over? Two things prevent you in prayer. One is you don't ask for enough because you don't believe God's big enough. And the other is you ask, but you've got a problem with somebody that is in God's kingdom. can't do that. I heard preacher emphasize it this way. If Dina has a problem with Darnell, she's to leave her gift at the altar and go get things right with Darnell, right? That's Matthew 18. You all know that? said, but the emphasis is on leave your gift at the altar and then go... <laughs> I don't know, but I think he may have twisted that context a little bit. Ephesians 3. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask for or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. His power is at work within us and He can do immeasurably more than you could ask for or imagine. That doesn't sound like you're the cast out loner who's fixing to get stoned, does it? I mean, stoned with rocks, not... <laughs> It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like God might think you have some potential. Ashley, God thinks you have some potential. Then God thinks you have some potential. The jury's still out on Matthew, but... Alright, I've got four minutes, and I want you to hear this. Here's what I want you to leave knowing that you can do. You're going to minister restoration and reliance. Here's two popular scriptures for you. Restoration and reliance. This is what you need to pray for, that you can minister restoration and reliance. Psalm 51.12. I'm turn to that one. You all better turn there. Occasionally I'll get it wrong when I preach. Every once in a while I just lie. I'm kidding. Well, maybe I did just lie. See, you better read. You better check. Don't take my word for it. Somebody died to get you that book. 
Psalms is in the middle. Psalm 51 is in the first third of the book of Psalms. Turning, turning, turning. <laughs> All right, most of you are there. The rest of you just have to trust me. Restore to the joy of your salvation. Number if you're saved, I want to see it by the smile on your face. Cassidy has quoted my teaching as fake it until you make it. That's okay with me. Put a smile on your face till it becomes a reality in your heart. The truth is, it's just easier to go through life that way. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Boy, isn't that a good prayer? A willing spirit to sustain me. That way, James 2, where your own evil desires, actually it's 1 at the end, don't drag you away. We want a willing spirit to sustain us. Then I will teach professors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Interestingly enough, David's going to teach transgressors to repent and turn back, right? You know when this psalm was written? Right after David blew it with Bathsheba. Interesting. You know, he was mercy, so he was to teach others about the mercy of God. That to God. You remember a woman that was unclean, had been involved in an unhealthy lifestyle, came and clung to the feet of Jesus? What did the religious people say? If he knew what kind of woman this was, surely he wouldn't let her touch his feet like that. They're so holy they couldn't even somebody touch them that was this unholy. What did Jesus say? He who's been forgiven much. been forgiven. That's the mark of the church. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. You know what blood guilt he's worried about? He had a man killed because he wanted his wife. This guy's got a heart after God, too. You think human beings aren't flawed? You think God can't use you because You've sinned so badly. How seriously have you killed her husband, taken her and knocked her up? I guess it's possible. And yet God used this guy to write Scripture. So how, how far gone are you that God can't use you? Hmm? How far gone are you that God can't use you? By the way, isn't this one of the prettiest songs you'll ever see? Create in me a clean heart. Next time you sing it, think about the circumstances under which it was written. We don't serve the God who saved you once. We serve the God who saves you many times every day. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What do you minister? You minister restoration to people out of your brokenness. You know, Lindy, I don't have all this right either. Sometimes I blow it too. And here's what I found. God is so close to me in the moment that I simply turn to Him and say, I need your help, Lord. That's how you minister. That's not looking down at Nick saying, How could you... Oh my God, you did what? Throw Nick out of the church, put it on the website and tell all of his closest friends. You laugh. 
It happens. It does happen. Thomas has gone down in history as doubting Thomas, right? One moment in his life. One moment in the man's life. And he's labeled by the church world as doubting Thomas. Never mind the fact that he said to Jesus for the first time any human being on earth ever said, My Lord and my God. What we remember is doubting Thomas. What's wrong with us? Let's start to look at people for what they can be in Christ instead of what they were yesterday. Let's minister restoration. Now I told you you were going to minister restoration and what else? Reliance. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 14. So my God, this guy preaches a long time. Yeah, and you don't know me that well. We sometimes can't fit them on two CDs. I want to give you something to chew on during the week. Anybody doing their homework from Wednesday night? Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Brother messed up and called me during the week. He said, hey, what are you doing? I said, what are you doing? He said, nothing. I said, good. I have a homework assignment for you. He said, uh, okay. Boy, I gave him one too. Psalm 50, oh, we already did that. Second Chronicles 14, verse 11. This will be the last Scripture we read. Actually, let's start in verse 9. Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with a vast army and 300 chariots and came as far as Merashah. Asa went out to meet him and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephath near Merashah. Now, we're fixing to get to something. Y'all know that the prayer of Jabez has swept through the churches, right? I go into people's offices in my secular profession. They neither fear God nor love Him, but they got the prayer of Jabez on their wall. You know why? You know I'm talking about too, don't you, sweetheart? Oh, yeah! Who doesn't want to hear, Lord, expand my tent? Give me increase! There are some things that just appeal to us. That doesn't make the prayer of Jabez wrong. It just means that it can be used wrongly. I wonder why the prayer of Asa didn't catch on. I'm curious. Why? How many of you had ever heard of Jabez before that guy wrote the book? Right? No. No. But he said something we liked. So, oh my God, let's build gems to house the people. We'll have prayer of Jabez for Judah. Prayer of Jabez for ladies. Prayer of Jabez for men. Aerobics to prayer of Jabez, you know. Whatever we can sell. Why has the prayer of Asa not caught on? Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Saints, I want you to position yourself in God's kingdom where you are so sure that you're in His presence, you can say, Lord, it's not me they're coming against. I'm just a man. It's you. And don't let that man prevail against you. I'm relying on you. People have been horrified to hear that I raise kids without health insurance. I have health insurance. It's called the God Reliance Program. Now, I'm not advocating that all of you go give up your health insurance. Not doing that. Not even saying it's wrong of you to have it or less faith or any of those stupid things. What I'm trying to say is that we need to live lives in whatever area and whatever way you can where you are showing God 
Man, I'm relying on you. Not Visa. Not MasterCard. Not my church's doctrine. Not my pastor's approval. I'm relying on you. And then watch what he does. What was this guy's prayer? Don't let the man prevail against you, Lord. We're you. We're with you. We're relying on you. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled, and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of the Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and His forces. Now, in reality, it's Asa there, right? But because he relied on God and God took him up on the offer, God considered Asa His army. They were crushed before the Lord and His forces. When you devote yourself to prayer, if you rely wholly upon God, you'll be able to look at a mountain that has stood between you and what God's called you to do and watch it be removed into the sea because it's not really standing before you, it's standing before God. This is the last message that we're going to preach in this series. We're teaching on the book of Acts on Wednesdays. What I'm hoping for is to cultivate a real church. We're going to call it a community of believers where each of you love the other where we're all concerned about each other and we live our lives in such a way that it shows. We're going to devote ourselves to the teaching that's in the Word. We're going to devote ourselves to fellowship at all costs. I'm not too tired to go to church. I'm tired, so I need to go to church. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer. And right after the service, to the breaking of bread, ice cream, chocolate, and any other good thing I can find. (laughs) Y'all stand up and let's pray.